I remember as a kid listening to adults talk about where they were when they learned about John F. Kennedy's assassination. I had a hard time connecting with that because the thought of knowing exactly where you were at that specific moment seemed almost impossible to me and hard to imagine. But I remember exactly where I was when I learned about 9-11. I was in college, I was getting ready at my house for morning classes and we had the TV on and it was like I watched it in real time. You hope that you only have one of those kinds of events in your lifetime. The kind that stops everything and you'll remember forever. I can't speak for you, but it feels like to me that kind of tragedy is lurking around every corner right now. Feels like we're just waiting on the next shoe to drop. Something locally, something nationally, something globally, mass shooting, terrorist attack, something with the economy, something with politics, some natural disaster somewhere. We're just waiting for the next thing. You know, that creates an interesting spot for followers of Jesus because we're stuck between two things that we believe. One, that Jesus is in charge of everything. And two, that terrible things are happening in the world right now. And if this one is true, then why is the second thing true? If he really is in charge of everything, why do these terrible things keep happening? Eventually, you're going to have to wrestle with your faith and that question together if you want your faith to endure. If you just want it to be surface and shallow and rah-rah in the good times and whatever in the bad times, then you don't have to wrestle with that. But if you want it to be something that is a meaningful part of your life, that shapes everything just the way that Jesus intended it, we need to know how to fill the space between those two questions. Thankfully, our next passage in Hebrews helps us live in that tension. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse five, would love for you to pull out your Bible. If you brought one, would love for you to pull out your listening guide so you can write a few things down before you leave today. Hebrews chapter two, verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone." You see in your listening guide, there there are three things that I want you to remember. First, everything is subject to Jesus. It says in verse six, it has been testified somewhere. And then the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm chapter eight. The author of Hebrews does this a lot. 
quotes a lot of Old Testament passages. In fact, most of chapter one is just one quotation right after the other. But it's not just Hebrews that uses this technique. In fact, the Bible in general cross-references itself over and over and over and over again. And it gives us confidence today that the Bible is not just a combination of select short stories, but is in fact telling one long story of God's long-term plan to redeem the world and save humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. There's an illustration that I brought with you so that we have confidence today. Again, that the Bible is telling one story. These lines are every time the Bible cross-references itself. Again, not just disconnected little spiritual tidbits here and there, but over and over and over again, God building upon chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, telling one story, how he's redeeming and saving the world through Jesus. It says in Hebrews chapter two, in verse eight, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. There was an old theologian who said it like this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The Apostle Paul expressed the same idea in Colossians chapter 1 using these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. The word subjection is a royal word. It's about a king or a queen who's reigning or ruling over their subjects. What Hebrews is telling us today is everything in the world is a subject to Jesus. He reigns and rules over that. I have no problem amening that. But it's easier when things are really going well for me. It's more clearly identified that Jesus is reigning and ruling in my mind when everything is turning up in my favor, when my life has a lot of upward momentum. But how can we honestly say that everything is under the reign and rule of Jesus and address Las Vegas and accurately address someone who's lost everything in the flood? And speak with confidence about poverty. Speak with spiritual insight about fatherlessness and human trafficking. Which leads us to the next thing in your listening guide. We don't see everything. Again, verse 8 says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. I love that God inspired the first half of verse eight and the second half of verse eight. The first half says Jesus is in charge of everything. And the second half says, but we don't see that yet. And the scripture tells us we don't see it for a couple of reasons. First, we don't say everything aligned with Jesus' reign and rule because he has enemies. He has very real enemies. Satan is his enemy, the devil. The hierarchy of demonic beings 
expressing the devil's plan on planet earth, according to Ephesians chapter six. These are God's enemies. We also know that according to James chapter four, humans who choose friendship with the world as opposed to friendship with God make themselves enemies of God. And then finally, death is an enemy of God, according to the scripture. In fact, it will be the last enemy defeated. But we read in Revelation that Jesus will throw death into the lake of fire. We know from the New Testament that Jesus has won already. He's achieved victory. The match is over. And yet these enemies still keep swinging. And because they keep swinging, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. So we don't see it because he has enemies. We don't see it because he has patience. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We know that our faith and our sight will be aligned when Jesus returns. When he returns, we're going to see with our eyes everything operating under the reign and rule of Jesus just as he intends it. But he's delaying in coming. And 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 tells us why he delays or what he's doing as he delays. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So Jesus has promised to return and it's been 2,000 plus years and he's not returned yet. But Peter says, God is not being slow to fulfill his promise as some would count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So it's gonna come unexpected. Jesus is gonna return unexpectedly and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. In 1988, a man named Edgar W. wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. (laughs) Millions of people read this book. Spoiler alert, he was wrong. He was a smart guy, NASA engineer actually, but very, very wrong about Jesus returning in 1988. And I'm sure in 1988, I know some of you were barely even born yet. Some of you were not even born yet, which makes me feel super old. I'm sure that there were reasons in that year that the church would really be looking for Jesus to return. I mean, we know biblically we should be anticipating that daily. We should long for it. We should look forward to it. It's the end of this section of the race. Um, But also, I'm sure they could look around and globally, maybe there was something going on with the Soviet Union at the time uh, that was making them think about Jesus' return. Maybe there were natural disasters in that year or there was some kind of political climate that made Jesus' return something that they were really looking forward to. Or or maybe it was personal. Maybe Edgar W. had, had a really hard 1987, you know, I mean, a joke, but, but maybe cancer for him was in 1987, either in him or in somebody that he loved or, or heart triple bypass surgery or a job loss or who knows. But something was making him look, looking forward to that. In fact, to predict that Jesus was going to return in 1988 and, and Jesus didn't. And I personally am glad because it was in 1991 that I gave my life to the Lord. 
It was in 1991 that I recognized, even though that I was a good person compared to others, I was still lost and I needed saving and that God had sent Jesus to save me through his cross and through his resurrection. So Jesus didn't return yesterday. That's why we're here today. That's really good news for maybe many of you who have been going back and forth and you're a good person. You're trying this church thing out, but you've not committed your life to the Lord. You're trying to just kind of wade in a little bit, try the church thing on, see if it makes the changes that you're hoping for. But Jesus didn't return yesterday, which means that today is an opportunity for you because he doesn't want any to perish. So we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus yet. Not because he's slow, but because he's patient. And we also don't see everything in a subjection to Jesus yet because he sees time differently than we do. In that same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, says in verse 8, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. It was four years ago, right now, that we were preparing for a baby to come into our home. We were in the process of adopting and we met a a birth mom and we loved her and cared for her very much. And one day we got the call and she was headed to the hospital and we went to the hospital and it was like the three of us had a baby. And we were there and we were changing diapers and everything at home was ready. Nursery was ready. Everything was bought. Essentially the day that the baby should have been discharged and we would have taken him home into our family. Social worker came in. We're all in there. The birth mom, the baby, Amanda and I. Social worker is going to talk to the birth mom and she says, can you step outside into the waiting room? And we of course did. We were out there longer than I thought that we should have been. Social worker came around the corner. She says, the birth mom is having second thoughts. So I'm gonna have to ask you to leave the hospital. And we did. We never went back. That happened two more times to us in the nine months that followed that. And I'm gonna be honest, those were some dark days for us in our home the weight of those failed adoptions were constantly on our shoulders. And I know that God was with us, but if you just pick some random day in the aftermath of that and asked, is God with you? I don't know what I would have said. I think theologically, I would have said yes. Biblically, yes, I know. But I feel... Like quoting Jesus' words from the cross, I don't understand why you have forsaken me. I don't understand why you have turned your back on us. I don't know what we did to deserve this. We're just trying to serve people, expand our family, help a child. I I don't understand why you would do this to us. But I know that God was with us because according to the scripture in Psalm chapter 56, verse eight, and this is good for good news for any of us today who feel 
pained in some way, especially we've been wounded by God in our opinion, that he keeps track of all our sorrows, the psalm says. He collects our tears in his bottle and he records them in his book. So if you're in pain today, like we were in pain, God is with you. It may not seem like he is, but he is taking detailed notes of your suffering. He's writing it all down. And the reason he's writing it all down is because when Jesus returns, he's going to give you a crown of life that is even beyond the suffering that you have endured. I know that he saw us. Um, But what he could also see that we couldn't see in that moment was the thousands of people that we would interact with where our pain was somehow comfort to their pain. We couldn't see how our story would help anybody's story, but God did see that. He saw us there that day when we were leaving the hospital. And he also saw this little firecracker that would be born two years later. This is baby Willa. Will is not that much of a baby anymore, but uh, we put a giant gap in between our kids. Jackson is 11, and Annabeth is 8, and Willa is 2. And we didn't see Willa when we left the hospital that day, but God did. He saw both. And he saw how she was going to light up our life. Uh, we, he saw how she was going to be just the perfect fit in our family. He saw how she was going to be our family mascot. And when she was a baby sitting in her little booster seat, we were going to set her on our dining room table and just we all ate around her. (laughs) We couldn't see her that day, but he could see both. All you may be able to see right now is cancer. And he sees that too. But he sees... What's on the other side of cancer for you? He sees what's on the other side of cancer for your mom or your dad. Because he has a perspective on time that we don't have. This is all we have, this moment that we're living in right now. And because of that, we put all of our emphasis there. And we put all of our hope there in this moment that we're standing in right now. But Jesus can see everything. And because he can see everything and we can't see everything, it looks to us sometimes like not everything is subjected to him. And the third thing in your listening guide, I want you to see. And the last thing, Jesus' victory was won through his suffering. Jesus' victory was won through his suffering. Verse nine, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It says that he was for a little while made lower than the angels. That means that Jesus, the son of God, unique and holy and eternal, put on human flesh, became human while remaining the unique eternal son of God. He became a human and he stepped in for us. He was our substitute. He tasted death for us so that we might not have to taste death. Jesus died on the cross so that we didn't have to die on the cross. He took the penalty for our sin so that we didn't have to take on the penalty for our sin. And instead of the punishment for sin, he handed us eternal life. 
And it says that he was crowned with glory and honor. And look at why he was crowned with glory and honor in verse nine, because of the suffering of death. For you and I, it's either one or the other. There's either victory or there is suffering. But for Jesus, apparently suffering was his means to victory. It was because of his suffering that he won. The apostle Paul took this idea about Jesus and he applied it to his own life in 2 Corinthians chapter four. He says in verse seven, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The apostle Paul was saying is to the Corinthians is we've suffered. Paul and his missionary companions, his friends, we've suffered and, and they had suffered. Uh, he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day floating out in the middle of the ocean because he was shipwrecked. He was beaten with rods. People picked up stones and tried to kill him with those stones. He was thrown into prison time after time after time. He, he went hungry. He was without. There were instances where he didn't have any money and he was dependent on other people. And what Paul says is we've suffered. In fact, he says it harshly. He says, death is at work in us. Bad things keep happening to us over and over and over and over again. But his perspective was different. He didn't say because we've suffered, we've lost. He actually said because we've suffered, we've won. And what did he win? He won the Corinthians. He had won people to the faith. He says to the Corinthians, bad things are happening to us. Death is happening to us. But that's okay because it means that life is happening to you. We've received beatings and you've received eternal life. We've received jail sentences and you've received the forgiveness of sin. And I, I love how he says with honesty in verse eight, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He keeps saying, but not. We're afflicted in every way, meaning you just think up the bad things that could possibly happen to a person. And Paul says, we've been afflicted in that way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Paul, the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul didn't understand what was happening to him. You say, I have no idea, God, why you're doing this, why it's not working out. We try to go to this place and all we're met with is more prison and more beatings and more rejection. Paul was perplexed. He was confused, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And that struck down, that's not metaphorical. That's not like maybe we would say I was struck down. I was really hoping for a big raise and all I got was a medium raise. I'm just struck down by God. I've been struck down by God. We got this brand new uh, house, but my neighbor doesn't mow his yard every week. He only mows it every week and a half and it gets a little bit higher than I would like. And I'm just bothered by it. I've been struck down. That's how we might be struck down. But Paul would say, I know I've literally been struck down. Somebody picked up a stone and struck me down. Somebody picked up a rod and struck me down. 
but he says, I'm not destroyed. We could add to that list today. Maybe you find yourself single and you wish you weren't single. And you just say, honestly, I'm lonely, but not alone. Because God is with me. Because the family of God is with me. Say, I'm frustrated. Maybe even frustrated with God, but not quitting. Again, for us, it's either or. Either I'm frustrated and losing, or I'm victorious and everything is great. But Jesus' model shows us it's not one or the other. That even in our suffering, the victory of Christ is present. If I could summarize what Paul is saying to the Corinthians here, he's saying, we're gonna make it and you're gonna make it. You may feel struck down, but you're gonna make it. You may feel perplexed and confused and frustrated, but there's something on the other side of this. You're gonna make it. You know, we've been in the mix with all of this hurricane relief and we're doing our best to keep the course and you've been doing an amazing job. Uh, hundreds of you were out yesterday uh, in Cashmere Gardens and in Bear Creek, just loving on Houston, serving your neighbor and, and God is using you. And if, if you haven't been able to come out, but you've been praying or you've given financially, God is using you. And we received this note this week. I said letter, it wasn't really a letter, it was an email because nobody writes letters anymore. But they said this, our house had been lucky enough to never have been flooded. So obviously I had no clue about any of this. We let the house sit for a week trying to figure things out. Our friends and neighbors were telling us that we needed to leave. However, all the hotels were booked. We got really overwhelmed. One of my friends learned about some volunteer group online, that's you, and put my name in while we tried to pack and run. Within a few hours, I received a call and the next day a crew of volunteers showed up at our house. Not only did they help us tear up and haul out the debris, but they also left me a letter with a gift card. I tucked the letter close during our transit through the hotels as it gave me some hope forward. The day before school started, I opened it and used it to get the kids their school supplies. I'm not a religious person, but I opened up the Bible you gave me and the first page landed on Noah and the flood. This weekend, I hope FEMA is finally picking up the last pile of debris in our neighborhood and we can finally start moving forward rebuilding, even though I'm not sure if we are going to have a Halloween, Thanksgiving, or Christmas as before. I'm confident we will make it there simply because, and remember, they are not a religious person and they're getting ready to quote the scripture. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Thanks for being there with us when all else seemed to vanish. And thanks for infusing hope into a shattered community. See, through your time and sacrifice and financial partnership, what you said to this person is you're gonna make it. And they took that, not just that you were saying that, but that God was saying that to them. You're gonna make it. See, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus yet, meaning there are things all over the place, including our lives, 
that sometimes we think, well, if Jesus really was in charge, this would not be happening to me. But what we see from Jesus' own example is that suffering can be the means to victory. His lordship was expressed in his pain. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. The same thing happens when we suffer with faith. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. When your pain is infused with hope, when your pain is infused with faith, other people can see the victory of Jesus, even in your suffering. In our suffering, what it does is it focuses the lens of the people around us so that they can see Jesus more clearly. So I don't know how long it will be until you and I take to the internet and we read about the next thing that's happened. Could be later today. I don't know how long it will be before it's your turn to endure personal loss or it's my turn to endure personal loss. And when that happens, whether global tragedy, national tragedy, local tragedy, personal tragedy, we're gonna find ourselves stuck between two truths. Jesus is in charge of everything and terrible things are happening in the world and maybe even terrible things are happening in my world. And we're going to reaffirm what we knew to be true. Jesus is in charge of everything according to Hebrews chapter two. And we're gonna remind ourselves that we don't see everything yet but he does see everything. And we're gonna remember that even in our suffering, we can have victory. Let's pray together. Why don't you take a second in the spirit of prayer and just ask God directly, God, are you say anything anything specifically to me today. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. If you're a guest with us this morning, we finish our services here at Bayou City by praying for one another. So I'm going to ask our prayer folks to come forward and take their places here in the front and around the sides. So I want to invite you to come and be prayed for whatever's going on in your life. Maybe today you're like not even sure what you need to pray for, but there's something stirring in you. Thankfully, Romans chapter eight says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God helps us to know how to pray even when we don't know how to pray. But I do want to make a couple real specific invitations. First, if you are in pain right now and suffering, which we're either stuck, you know, if a few of us today are, things are going really well, better than it's ever gone. For a few of us, things are going worse than they've ever gone. And most of us are somewhere in the middle. And if you're somewhere in the middle today or you're at the bottom end, then I want you to come and pray, God, will you help me trust you? Because I can't see everything, but I know you can see everything. And so I'm just trusting you. So come and pray for trust. And then I also want to invite you to come and pray that maybe God would turn the page on this season that you're in. 
this season has been marked by difficulty and maybe the next season will be marked by comfort and joy. There's no, nothing wrong with asking God, can you move us out of this place to a different place? We see that all the time in the scripture. So God, we pray together. We're looking forward to how you're gonna answer these prayers, Lord. And I think most of all, what we need today in our prayer is just that you are there. You are there. We need Psalm 56, verse eight, to be real, that you're recording today our frustration. You're recording today our pain, difficulty. So as we pray, be near. As we pray, answer, come to our help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's worship together. And as God stirs your heart.